Good morning, Sugar Creek. Hey, if you're going to believe God, no matter what you see or no matter what the world says, can you go ahead and celebrate with me by clapping your hands? What a powerful song. Truly, truly powerful song. Hey, my name is Xavier Maryland. If we haven't had the pleasure of meeting, I get to serve as the pastor of high school students here at Sugar Creek, and I am excited that you are here today. If you're joining us online or at our Richmond Rosenberg or Missouri City campus, a very special welcome to you as well. Thank you so much for worshiping with us. Hey, if you're in here today or you're online today and you didn't get a chance to greet the person next to you, maybe you hadn't had a chance to talk to them, or maybe they came in late in true Baptist fashion, uh, can you just lean over to them and tell them, hey, this morning, tell them it's good to see them smile at somebody, wave at somebody, get to know the people around you. This is your church family. If you see them out in Kroger, you can love on them or call them out if they're, being, if they're misbehaving. I'm joking, but you get to know them a little bit better, of course. <laughs> Um, it is a pleasure to be with you this morning as we continue in our series Refocus. Uh, I was looking at the calendar the other day and my wife and I have officially been in Sugar Land and at Sugar Creek for a full year now. And so we're getting some time. Yeah, it's been amazing hanging out and uh, getting to know everybody. And we were reflecting, we're originally from North Carolina and we were reflecting on some things that are different between North Carolina and Houston. And the first one obviously is the weather. I mean, it's hot. Like right now it's not summer yet, but for me, this feels like peak heat. I feel like we can't go anywhere but up from here. And, but apparently this is the bottom. And so I'm a little depressed about that. Oh gosh, I'm a little depressed about that. The second thing we were debating about was like traffic and driving is different in North Carolina to Houston. Uh, where I'm from, people actually understand how to operate motor vehicles, but not so much in Houston, not so much in Texas. It's a little bit different for you guys. Uh, where I'm from, we normally don't merge six lanes because we don't have six lanes. Uh, where we're from in North Carolina, signal lights are used quite frequently, almost every time you make a turn. Imagine that. Uh, it's a new thing that people are doing, but you guys just hadn't caught on yet. It's a little bit different. Uh, where I'm from, the speed limit is more than just a suggestion. And so we actually do the speed limit. We might go five over, seven over, but you know, the other day I was in the left lane, which I'm told is the fast lane. Uh, wasn't going fast enough. I was going 10 over, forgive me, Jesus. Uh, but everybody was passing me. They were honking their horns. I guess they were excited to see me. They kept calling me the one, but it was with the middle finger. I don't know why they were doing that to me, but they, I said, hey, you're the one too, pal. You know, I appreciate you. Uh, and so it, it where I'm from, we, we just drive a little bit differently. The only place that I've been that's more difficult to navigate on the roads than Houston is actually my, my former senior pastor was from Jamaica. And so we spent some considerable time in Jamaica on a missions trip and then even on some vacations and some retreats. Anybody in here from Jamaica, by the way? Good to see you. Yeah, Jamaica in the room. Good to see you guys. Maybe you've been to Jamaica, have family from Jamaica. Here's the thing that you can understand is that if somebody has driven in Jamaica, they are now probably in the top one percentile of drivers in the world. Because let me tell you about my experience in Jamaica. So as we're, when we're here, when I was in Jamaica, normally when you have lines on the road, they're there and they're there for good. But in Jamaica, they might move. They might move over to the left. They might move over to the right. They might disappear completely. And what you thought was a two-way street is now a one-way street with no signage and no warning. Uh, the person across from you can also turn it into a one-way street if they feel like it. It's up to their discretion. Uh, in Jamaica, they have signal lights, but they don't use them. They just kind of point out the window sometimes and tell you that they're coming over. And it's not a forewarn. It's not necessarily, hey, can I get over? It is a warning. I am coming over whether you are in my way or not. 
uh, so there were some things that were similar, like I got there and I'm like, okay, you can turn right on red, that's good. But then I got to the next stoplight and I realized apparently you can turn left on red. This is a new thing to me that I discovered in Jamaica. And then I got to the next stoplight and you could go straight on red. And so, I mean, you could do, the point is, as long as you get there, you're good. You don't have to get there safely. You don't have to get there with anyone else's permission. You just get there. As long as you get there, mission accomplished. And what I'm learning about driving and what I'm learning about my life and how I like to navigate is that driving is just better with some guidelines and some boundaries. Driving is better when you and I have a set of rules that we all can abide by and they make the driving experience better for everybody. I'm learning that driving is better with guidelines and boundaries. I'm also learning, this is your first point, that life is better with guidelines and boundaries. My wife and I are expecting our first right now. It's a baby boy. And so we are excited. Yeah, absolutely. It's a chance to celebrate. I was really excited. Then I got my first medical bill. Now I'm medium excited. Um, so my, my wife and I are celebrating, but I'm a little nervous because I have, a, I have a younger brother who's 16 years younger than me. And I remember going with my father to his you know, preschool games. And we was playing like basketball and soccer and track and all of these things. And if you've ever been to a game of a baby, like a kid, there is no structure whatsoever. I mean, the coaches are on the court. They're like guiding them along. There's, they don't have to abide by any of the rules. I watched a basketball game. The score finished three to two. That was it. And I was like, this is the worst thing I've ever seen in my life. And I'm bad at pretending. And so I feel like I'm going to be a horrible dad because I'm going to be the dad that's there like yelling at the other kids and yelling at myself like, hey, get your head in the game. We got to witness at the two-year-olds. And I'm like, oh my goodness, this pastor's very angry. And then I'm going to have to lie to him, tell him I go to another church. It's just going to be horrible, you know? And, um, but, but what I'm learning about sports is that sports are just better. They're more enjoyable for me and for everybody when they have some guidelines and boundaries. Life is better with guidelines and boundaries. And the truth is we can go on and on and on and on and on about the things in life that are better with guidelines and boundaries, relationships, driving, public restrooms, education, all of those things are better because there's a set of rules that you bye-bye. Fellas, you know that God had done the bye by the bathroom rules and you know exactly what I'm talking about. Life's not better when that God doesn't abide by the rules. There's a code that you get. You come a man. And so here's the deal. Why is it that we look at our lives and we understand that everything in life seems to be better with a little bit of guidelines and boundaries, but the truth is we get this tension when we talk about sexuality and relationships and sometimes we just want to be free to do whatever it is that we want to do and experience whatever it is we want to experience. But the truth is, and I think what the Bible would argue, is that even sexuality is better when there are some types of guidelines and boundaries. If you've been here for the past couple of weeks, then you know that we've been in this series called Refocus. And we're essentially saying, hey, there's all of these different competing worldviews and cultures that want to change the way we think. And today we're diving even deeper into one of those issues specifically, and that is sexuality. And so if you haven't been here in a while, boy, did you pick the worst Sunday to come back? I'm joking. If you haven't been here in a while, what we're making, what we're arguing in this series is that you and I have these competing things in our head that want us to believe something different, but we find our foundation, our way of thinking, our way of life, our way of interacting, what is right and wrong, how we treat each other. We get all of those things from the Bible, from what God has given us in his word. In the past two weeks, our senior pastor set us up for how we know we can trust the Bible and, how, and the reasons we need to take our cues from scripture. 
and scripture alone. And so if you haven't been here, I would encourage you when you leave today to go back and watch it. We have some guidelines and boundaries in this series ourselves, which is number one, we're not being political at all. We're not here to tell you how to vote, who to vote for, or any of those things. And we're also gonna try to handle this topic full of truth, meaning we don't wanna shy away from what the Bible says, but we also wanna be full of grace. And that's exactly what the Bible describes Jesus as being like. You, you may be nervous in the room today because you know, your experience with sexuality in the Bible is that God hates sex and sexuality. And the truth is that that's not true at all, that God created us to be sexual beings and that he wants us to enjoy sex, but he wants us to enjoy it with guidelines and boundaries. And if you're here today and you're wondering why I was the youngest pastor on staff teaching about sexuality, join the club, I'm joking. Um, I understand that, we understand that you probably have some concerns, but the good news is that this is not something we're gonna teach based on our own experiences, but we're gonna try to teach strictly from the word and it's gonna give us some guidelines that regardless of who you are, what you believe, or regardless how old you are, these things will be timeless to us and give us exactly what the scripture says. Um, so let's go on a journey together, First Corinthians chapter chapter number six, 1 Corinthians chapter number six, verse number nine. If you have your Bible with you, you could turn there with me. I'm gonna read the New Living Translation, but 1 Corinthians chapter six, verse number nine. Before we get started, let me give you a little bit of background about the city of Corinth, which is, the book is called Corinthians because Paul is writing a letter to a church in the city of Corinth. And the city of Corinth would have been kind of this little lovely town, and it would be at the southern part of Greece, nestled right in between Athens and Sparta. It would be surrounded by water, or it would have a water border to it. And as a result, you would have all of these ships that came in bringing all different types of people who wanted to take advantage of the trade and the booming economy. And so you have people that were moving there, moving out. It'd be a very transient city. There would be very eclectic. It would be all types of people of different social statuses, different economic statuses, and all of those things. It would be kind of like a port city. And if you're listening well, you'll realize that this city actually kind of sounds a lot like Houston. It'd be a city that bordered the water. It'd be a city that would be very diverse. It'd be a city full of different religions. It'd be a city full of different beliefs. It'd be a city full of different cultures. And all of these people would be there together. And as a result, sometimes you would interact with these people who had a very blended view of some things, that some of their stuff would be biblical or based in a different religion, but then some of it would be kind of off the wall a little bit. And that's the church that Paul is writing to in the city of Corinth. And he starts out in this chapter addressing two Christians who had a lawsuit against each other. And he was trying to make a point to them uh, about how foolish they were for trusting the legal system to handle biblical matters. And that could be a sermon within itself, Pastor Johnny, but that's not what they asked me to preach. He says, but he goes on to try to prove to them why it's bad for us to try to get over on each other and why it's bad for us to try to trust non-believers to handle Christian matters. And then he takes this tangent 
to show them just how bad it is, giving this list of things that the Lord does not approve of. And then he uses that list to catapult into a whole conversation. It's kind of like if you've ever gotten a lecture from one of your parents, if you can think back, it started about like making your bed, but then it turned into how you were never gonna be successful because you weren't disciplined. Yeah, students in the room, you know exactly what I mean. And and so here's the deal. Don't look at your parents too much. I wanna keep you out of trouble. Um, And so here's the deal. Paul takes that tangent to then address some sexual sin issues that were creeping into the church. He said, hey, some of you are tolerating things that the world wouldn't even tolerate. If he could say it today, he said, hey, the church, there are things happening inside the church that Hollywood will look down on. He's saying, if you've been keeping up with pop culture, there are things happening inside the church that even Johnny Depp and Amber Heard would shake their head at. That's what he's saying. He's like, this is getting out of hand. And so that's where we find ourselves, a lot of background. First Corinthians chapter six. I don't know how this stuff pops into my head. Um, First Corinthians chapter six, verse number nine. It says this. It says, don't you realize that those who do wrong will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't fool yourselves. Those who indulge in sexual sin or who worship idols, this is a long list, commit adultery or male prostitutes or practice homosexuality or thieves or greedy people or drunkards or abusive or cheap people, none of these will inherit the kingdom of God. Then he says, some of you were once like that, but you were cleansed, you were made holy, you were made right with God by calling on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the spirit of our God. Now, Paul is not saying that if you've ever stolen anything that you cannot get into heaven and have a relationship with God. If that was the case, at four years old, when I stole my very first Oreo, I would have been excluded from heaven. What Paul is saying is, you and I cannot inherit the kingdom of God if we're going to live a life that is dominated by sin a life that is patterned by habitual, continuous, unrepentant, unforgiven sin. It means that I'm no longer concerned about living right whatsoever. I have given in and I have become categorized by the sin that is in my life. I have become a servant to my sin, a servant to my flesh. And he uses two words here. It's the words that our Bible just translated as sexual sin and homosexuality. But the truth is Paul uses a different word in the Greek language. And if we could be Bible nerds just for one moment, those first blanks right there is really what I want to give us definition for the word sexual sin that Paul uses or a sexually immoral person is the word pornos which comes from the word porneia which describes any sexual activity outside of the biblical marriage God establishes in Genesis and this includes everything from cheating adultery fornication living together in a sexual relationship to someone I'm not married to pornea includes all of these different things as a matter of fact when I was reading it it kind of sounds like a list of side effects you ever see those commercials online it's like hey you know this included but not limited to and they just list off all the things that's what it feels like but it's included but not limited to homosexuality lesbianism prostitution polygamy pornography magazine inappropriate text messages with somebody It's any erotic or sensual energy I focus towards someone or something who is not my monogamous heterosexual spouse. And I know that's tough. 
we spent a bunch of time laughing in the beginning because now we're not gonna laugh no more. Um, and I know it's tough, but Paul was using this all-encompassing word to describe this situation. He, he was using this word. It's almost like if I tell you to honor your parents, I wouldn't have to give you a list of how to honor and how to dishonor because inside of the word carries a connotation and an understanding of what honor looks like. And the word porneia is just like that. And it includes any sort of desire, temptation, and sin that is not what the Bible would describe as what God wants. And he doesn't have to go through and list the specific sin that you struggle with or the specific sin that I struggle with. But the truth is, if we were to go through the day, we all have an idea of what sexual sin is and what your primary struggle might be. I think the temptation in reading a word like this is to try to start ranking them all, right? It's to try to start going, okay, well, you know, I don't struggle. I'm not cheating on my wife, but I might struggle with a little bit of pornography and to try to put them in different categories. But Paul isn't separating them and putting them in categories and on pedestals. And he's saying sexual sin is sexual sin. That looking and lusting is on the same level as fornication and adultery. And he's not separating them so that you and I could feel better about the things that separate us from God. But he's leveling the playing field and saying, this is, and it's actually the exact same word that Jesus uses in Matthew chapter five to try to show everybody that something that deviates from the plan, that goes outside of the guidelines and boundaries that God set up for marriage, anything that goes outside of those guidelines is considered porneia and is considered sinful to God. And the second word that Paul uses, um, which we have to do some digging into, um, is the word arsenokoita. It's the word that is translate that Paul, that the Bible translates here as homosexuality. Now, there wasn't necessarily a word for homosexuality in the way that we experience it today. Paul would not have a concept of gender identities and pronouns and people who identify as their sexual orientation. And the thing that our culture has done well is it has convinced people that your sexual orientation and activity is not just a preference of yours, it is who you are. So inside of who you are or inside of your preference is baked into it a system of beliefs. And now if I happen to believe this way, I have to agree that that is who you are. And if I disagree with the activity, I now hate you as a person. And that's just simply not true. And so Paul uses this word arsenokoita, which is, it comes from the word arson in the Greek, which means man, and the word koitai, koitas, or koitai, depending on the verb or the noun, and that means bed, and it literally just means men who bed with men. Now, why am I doing the research to dig in on this? It's because a quick Google search will show you people who have taken scriptures out of context and used it to prove that homosexuality and homosexual relationships are not sinful. And so I'm not, I'm not elevating this to show that homosexuality is wrong, but I need to dispel a misnomer that biblically the Bible supports homosexuality. And so what Paul does here, people who argue this will say that Leviticus chapter 18 and 20, which is where we probably first get the reference of homosexuality, is only referencing a cultural issue 
of the people in Leviticus. But what Paul does is, if you were to pull up the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Old Testament, you would see when they're talking about homosexuality, this word arson and koita are right beside each other. And Paul combines them into one word, arson or koita, and literally pulls this cultural reference into a commandment of the New Testament. And he's made building a bridge to say, hey, I wanna make it very clear that homosexual relationships deviate from the plan for God's uh, original view of marriage, not as a way to elevate it above every other sin, but as a way to prove that just like any other sexual sin, it is in fact sinful. And here's the deal, Christians, we make an error in two ways. So if you're a believer in the room, let me tell you how we have a tendency to make an error. And if you're a non-believer in the room, what I wanna do is actually apologize to you a little bit. Because in Christian, as, as Christians, we make errors in two ways. The first way we make an error is when we elevate homosexuality to be the cardinal sin of life. And we make people feel as if, if that's something they struggle with, they are unforgivable, unredeemable, and unloved by God. And that's simply not biblically true whatsoever. The second way we make error though, is when we try to convince ourselves or other people that because I or someone else struggles with this sin, it's not sin at all. And that's also a way that we err. And the truth is that it's the, the, the correct answer is somewhere in the middle, that yes, it is a sin, but it's not the cardinal sin and it's not unforgivable. And in the same way that I have sin in my life and you have sin in your life, someone who struggles with sexual sin of any kind has a journey to go on, a repented journey that says, Christ has loved me so much and now I have to learn to turn my back on and walk away from my sin. Because the truth is, when you and I got saved, when you and I first became Christians, we didn't clean up all the sin in our life. And the truth is, right now, we're all just grateful that our sin isn't telegraphed above our heads. And what we have to learn to do is to realize that here's your blank. Acceptance of a person is not approval of a sin. And that our response to anybody who struggles with any sin is the same that I can accept and love you as a person and disapprove of the sinful lifestyle that you live and that that is okay. As a matter of fact, if right now I'm up here and you heard me disrespect somebody in anger, I would expect that a few of you would call me out in love and say, hey, Pastor Xavier, I don't think the Bible says that. And although I might be offended by what you say, the truth is biblically you would be right and you can still love me and accept me even in the middle of calling out and disapproving my sin. It's exactly what we saw Jesus do with Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus was his tax collector. He was hated by a lot of people. He was a cheater and a swindler and he would get over on people all the time. But when he met Jesus, Jesus didn't shun him and say, get away from me, you sinner, turn away from your evil lifestyle and then you can come and hang out with me and the disciples. As a matter of fact, Jesus does exactly the opposite. He calls Zacchaeus by name and then sets up dinner with Zacchaeus at his own house and he spends time with Zacchaeus and loving on Zacchaeus and he accepts Zacchaeus as a person even though he disapproves of Zacchaeus' lifestyle. And the truth is that that's the stance we have to have as Christians. And if you're in the room today, regardless of what sin you struggle with, sexual sin, homosexuality, lesbianism, whatever it is, we want you to know that Sugar Creek is a place that you can be accepted as a person. But the truth is that biblically, we won't ever be able to approve of your sin in the same way that they won't be able to approve of mine. And so grace says 
that you're unconditionally loved by God. But truth says, in the middle of your acceptance and love by God, he still will disapprove of the sin in our lives. That's tough. Here we go. So what are some, okay, Pastor Xavier, you've proved it to us. We have some common language. What are some common excuses that we make? Some common excuses that we make. I'm gonna show you, because sexual sin is a sin, if I can be honest with you, that we try to defend. It's a sin that we try to keep around. We try to make a few excuses for. And so what is, what are some common excuses? It's actually the same excuses that the Corinthians made in 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verse 12. Listen to what Paul says to them. He says, you say I am allowed to do anything, but not everything is good for you. And even though I'm allowed to do anything, I must not become a slave to anything. You say food was made for the stomach and the stomach for food. This is true, though someday God would do away with them both. But you can't say that our bodies were made for sexual immorality. They were made for the Lord and the Lord cares for our bodies. Here's the three things, the three excuses that they made. And I'll give you all three points really quickly. The first one they made was it's legal. The second excuse that they made was it's natural. And the third excuse that they made was it's not harmful. Just read it right there. He says, hey, they say, hey, Paul, all things are allowed. Paul, I mean, Paul, it's not illegal for me to take a second glance as somebody looks by and just to let a little fantasy play out in my head. But Paul, it's not illegal for me to have these things that I consistently go back to on my phone when I need a little bit of comfort. But Paul, it, it, it's not illegal if my wife is not fulfilling all or my husband's not fulfilling all of my needs. It's not illegal for me to go out and just, you know, feel like I'm meeting my needs. The Bible says that she's responsible and he's responsible for meeting my needs. If they're not doing it, then I, it's not illegal for me to step out and do that. It, it's not illegal for me to be in a relationship with somebody I'm not married to and live in. These things are not illegal and they're using the legality of the situation to try to make an excuse for the lifestyle that they were living and we do the same thing. The, the second thing they say is it's natural. They say, hey, the stomach is for food and food's for the stomach. They say, Paul, you don't get it. Like this is something that I'm craving within the inner fabric of my being. This is something that I want more than anything else. Paul, you don't understand. In the same way that I crave food, I crave this other person. It's a natural response to me. It was almost as if they're saying, Paul, I was born with this. And the truth is, Paul is saying, regardless of how natural it feels and regardless of what the craving is like, you and I cannot be servants to our cravings. We cannot live a life that we have to serve our sinful desires. You and I cannot live a life where we consistently give in over and over and over and over, not being able to control the things we think about, not being able to control the things we say, getting used to getting close to the line without going over it. You and I have to live a life of control because the truth is, if you're being honest, there's been some conversations that you've had at work with your, this is a new term that's popped up really uh, recently, with your work wife or work husband. And that's just a person at work that you keep like, it's just some type of vibe there, some type of energy, that, 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 that feeling. You can't say that you haven't entertained thoughts that you, might not have, that you might not should have entertained. An excuse that you can make for yourself is that it's legal or it's natural, but Paul was expelling these excuses well before you and I were even born. Here's the third one. Paul, they say, Paul, it's not harmful. It's not hurting anybody, Paul. 
Like, I'm cool. Like, I'm good, Paul. I just, if it was today, they say, Paul, I just don't want to be married. I want to be in a bunch of different relationships. I don't understand how somebody could be with one person physically for the rest of their life. Paul, do you know how long the rest of my life is? I don't. That's why I'm not getting married. And that's why they were making excuses. It's not going to hurt anybody. And it's the same excuse over and over and over because the Corinthians wanted to live in a sexually free culture without guidelines and boundaries. And it's the same way that you and I want to live sometimes in a sexually free environment without guidelines and boundaries. But it's the guidelines and the boundaries that help us to enjoy what God set up for us to enjoy. Okay, how, 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 how do we end up in these sins? What, what, is the, what is the sin pathway? Okay, you've convinced me. I can't make these excuses anymore. Before you and I are gonna be free from something and before we're gonna get over something, we have to understand how we end up in the situation. And I think that's described beautifully in James chapter one, verse 14. It says this, and I know we're moving a little fast. It says, temptation comes from our own desires. Our desires entice us and drag us away. These desires give birth to sinful actions. And when sin is allowed to grow, it gives birth to death. So ultimately, my desires lead me into temptation. My temptation leads me into sin. And my sin, when it grows up, leads to death in an environment of my life. I'll show you how this works beautifully. Uh, Not beautifully, but I'll show you how it works almost systematically and systemically. It's because if you think about it right now, some of you, and just like I do, you come from a broken home where your parents aren't together. And you know why? It's because deep down, one of them had a desire. And that desire led to temptation. And that temptation led to sin. And when that sin grew up, it led to a broken family where you had to split time between mom and dad. It led to a broken family. It led to a broken home. And the truth is that our sin, when we let it run rampant, there is no innocent sin. There is no sin that you and I get away from. We might not physically die, but every sin carries within it a consequence. Every sin carries within itself a consequence. Okay, and here's the the fill in the blank. Sexual drive without boundaries will end in a moral crash. Here's the deal. We convince ourselves sometimes. Hear me say this. I don't don't want you to feel like the Bible is berating us, but the Bible wants to be clear with us that sometimes we feel like we're getting away with stuff that we're simply just not getting away with. And the Bible is trying to rescue us from this crash, this impending moral crash because sin will always take you further than you want to go and keep you there longer than you want to be there. And here's the other thing that sin will try to do. Sin will try to convince you that you're the only person struggling with that specific sin and keep it a secret. And that's just simply not true. So, so what, what is it? What, what are some practical steps? Pastor Xavier, you, you, you've convinced me. Uh, hey, I, I feel like maybe I am addicted to pornography and maybe I have been for as long as I can remember. Maybe I am living with a man or a woman I'm not, not married to. Maybe I have been sending some inappropriate text messages or Snapchats or DMs. Maybe I have been physically or mentally or emotionally intimate with someone else who's not my spouse. Maybe I've been in and out of relationships whether heterosexual or homosexual and they haven't been honoring God. Maybe I want to deep down leave my spouse 
spouse because uh, sexually I'm just bored because I have so much of this pent up sin in my heart. What, what do I do? What do I do if I'm struggling? What do I do if this is something that I'm trying to get over? What do I do if this is something I'm trying to move past? Pastor Xavier, what does the Bible say about this? I think there are four quick things that we can learn about avoiding sexual sin. Let's read 1 Corinthians chapter, uh, chapter 6, verse number uh, 18 through 20. It says this. It says, run from sexual sin. It says, I notice the exclamation point. Run from sexual sin. Let me show you. It don't mean like, oh, man, sexual sin is over there. I don't want to do that. It means like take off, starting block, full sprint in the opposite direction. I would run. My pants a little tight, though. Don't want to rip them. I got one more service to do. Run from sexual sin. It says, no other sin so clearly affects the body as this one does. Sexual immorality is a sin against your own body. Don't you realize that your body is the temple of the Holy Spirit who lives in you and was given to you by God? You do not belong to yourself for God brought you with a high price. You must honor God with your body. Here's the first thing when it comes to avoiding sexual sin is this, number one, identify the root. Identify the root. Remember, sin comes when our desires or when our, tempta- when our desires give birth to temptation. So at the heart of every one of our sins is actually an unmet desire. And when you and I figure out which desire is going unmet, it puts us in position to bring that desire to God. For example, maybe it is that you've been right now, you're in a relationship and you're living with somebody and you guys are not married. But the truth is, it's not just that you're living together and in that sexual sin because you can't physically control yourself. But the truth is that at the bottom of your desire is a desire for safety and security and the safety and security met by living with someone else and having the covering of someone else is driving you into sin. And so it's not about the sexual temptation. It's about the desire for security. And when I identify that, I can take that desire to God and say, God, can you teach me how to be secure and safe in you? Maybe right now you're struggling because the truth is you don't want to be with your spouse. And yeah, you have some lust issues that are peaking up and bubbling over and all of that stuff. But the truth is, it's not about the physical temptation at all, is it? The truth is that deep down, you've just been married for a while now. And you remember what it was like back in high school, college, in the early times of your career when you just had it like that. And you felt like you could have your pick of whoever you wanted. And now your desire for that sexual temptation and sin is not just a physical thing, but you want to prove that you still got it. The desire is significance. And so when you and I find the desire, when we find the root underneath our sexual sin, it gives us an ability to uproot it. The truth is, maybe you do have uh, homosexual desires or lesbian desires or whatever it is. And, And the truth is that maybe the temptation is there, but deep down the desire is to be accepted. And you just love the way that community wraps their arms around you and supports you. And if I can identify the desire underneath the sexual sin, I can get closer to dealing with the root of it. Number two, I have to, one, I have to identify the root. Number two, I have to set proper boundaries. Remember, it said flee. 
It means that I don't ask the question how far is too far. It means that I set my boundary so far away from the edge that there is no chance that I end up in that situation whatsoever. I don't want to keep sending text messages, keep hanging out at night, keep going to movies, keep going to dinner, keep sitting on the couch, keep getting a little closer, keep holding hands a little bit, keep kissing just a little bit, and then get all the way close to the edge and then say, okay, now I'm going to stop. Now let me stop. I'm playing. Okay, ooh, that's too far. I want to set my boundary so far away from the edge that I don't have to deal with the sexual temptation. Number three and number four are very similar. First is remember that you belong to God. And second is focus on long-term goals instead of short-term satisfaction. Here's the deal, you and I are not in just a battle. We are in a war. And the truth is that I have to say, God, even more than just stopping this sexual sin, What I want more than anything else is to be like you. God, I wanna make you proud. God, I wanna do what you've called me to do. God, I wanna be who you've called me to be. And when that is my focus, I take the focus off of just this short-term battle that I need to overcome right now, and I focus on an internal change that changes me from the inside out. God, I don't wanna just stop watching pornography. God, I want a heart for you. And I let the word of God permeate my soul and change me from the inside out. And the truth is along the journey, I might lose some battles, but I'm fighting a longer mission and I'm fighting a longer war. And I realize, this is the last point, I'm saying it again, because sexual drive without boundaries will end in a moral crash, which means when I enjoy sexuality the way that God intended, I enjoy it more. I'm reminded um, when I was a kid, oh, Pastor Johnny, can you help me with this? I'm reminded when I was a kid, um, Pastor Johnny, I'm noticing every time I'm here, you here. I think maybe it's because I'm joking with you. Okay, here you go. Can you take that, Pastor Johnny? Man, what I have in my hand here is I'm reminded as a kid, we would always fly these kites. And as a matter of fact, I went and bought one because, I mean, I feel like a kid at heart sometimes. And, and the truth is that as a kid, I would take the kite and I have it. And if you know, you know, by the way, I take the kite and I have it. And sometimes I would just run with the kite, like having my fun. And the kite's cool, right? Like it fly a little bit. Like I feel like I got a little like shindig here. It was cool. But the truth is that the kite never reached this full potential until I took the kite and I tethered it down to something else. And I used a string to bind the kite to some type of grounding. And now all of a sudden, thank you so much if you could hold out on Pastor Johnny, I take my grounding and I attach it to my kite and it gives me more freedom. And the truth is that being tethered didn't remove the freedom of the kite, being tethered added to the ability of the kite. And the truth is that it in your life and in my life, when it comes to sexuality and when it comes to living the life that God called us to live, being tethered to the scriptures does not lead to less enjoyment. But just like a kite, it is the full reason that you and I get to flourish and enjoy the life that God has given us. So don't see this as rules to take away your freedom, but see it as God, you've given me ability to tether. And when I tether, I'll further than I ever could by myself. Let's pray. Thank you, Pastor Johnny. God, thank you so much for this day that you've given us. Remind us, Father, that you are for us and not against us. And that every rule, boundary, and guideline you give us 
is because you wanna see us thrive and flourish and enjoy the things that you've given us. God, help us to avoid sexual sin, not just on the short term, but on the long term. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Everybody together say it. Amen. Amen. Come on, can we clap our hands one more time?